three principal aspects of the path. I, I talked about it before. It goes back to a text uh, by Lama Tsongkhapa, and it's Lama Tsongkhapa's attempt to condense the Buddhist teachings into these three principles. And in the Guluk tradition, a familiarity with these three principles and a practice of the, these three principles are seen as uh, um, kind of an entry or a necessary f uh, foundation uh, for entering tantric practice. So the three principles are emerging, Emerging from what? Emerging from dissatisfaction. Emerging from confusion. Yeah. Traditionally, this is called renunciation, but that's not a really good word. So it is also translated as the determination to be free or a definite emergence. And the second principle is opening. And that refers to opening the heart, bodhicitta. And the third principle is dissolving limiting projections. And uh, so the, the wisdom part, the emptiness teachings. So these are the three principles, renunciation, bodhicitta, and emptiness. Emerging, opening, and dissolving. And uh, after our first meditation, I want to talk a bit about these three principles and how they apply to the Vajrasattva practice. Mm -hmm. And then when we do the Vajrasattva practice, I want to um, point uh, to the places in the Vajrasattva practice where, uh, where we can connect with these three principal aspects of the path. So for Lama Tsongkhapa, Lama Tsongkhapa would say, without these three principles, you know, without bringing these three principles into your spiritual practice, you have actually not a spiritual practice. You are not a spiritual practitioner. Maybe trying to meditate because you want to lower the blood pressure or be more productive at work or be more fit or something like that. So these uh, three principles we can always kind of check in our own practice, in, in our intention of the practice. Are they, uh, are they present? How can I nurture them? How can I, how can I cultivate these three principles? But let's take first a few uh, minutes to um, arrive here and create some space. Just sitting quietly for 10 15 minutes. So, if you want, you can close your eyes. If your eyes are open, then you keep the gaze relaxed. when you start to pay a bit more attention to your inner life and to what you bring here with you into this evening. Maybe you still can feel something 
which happened just before or something which is present in your life. So how are you doing? What is here for you? thing here is to embrace, to befriend, to allow, to accept, and if it supports you, you can use the breath as a, as a friend by sliding with the in-breath into the body even down into your feet, noticing the chair, and then with the out breath, release. You release effort, tension, just a little bit. So with the in-breath sliding or dropping into the body, embracing, bathing your experience in breath. And then with the out-breath, softening. In the belly. Also the solar plexus. Give up thinking. Of course, the thinking will not stop, but you just give it up. You unhook from it, because there's nothing you need to think about right now. Recognize the insubstantial nature of thoughts. They are like clouds passing. And you emphasize the energy in your belly, in your solar plexus, in your hands, combined with the breath. And again, the most important is a sense of warmth, a sense of gentleness with yourself. Really radically welcoming what is. And as best as you can, letting go of struggle. Letting go of wanting this moment to be different than it is. 
then you, when you find yourself entangled in the thinking, you let the bubble burst, and you drop back into the trunk of your body. Let yourself be okay. Then we call upon the presence of Vajrasattva in the space in front of us as our object of refuge. Vajrasattva is an archetypical symbol of our own indestructible, uncorruptible purity. And with him comes the presence of the Buddha, the Dalai Lama, the Kamapa. They are all Vajrasattva. They are inseparable from Vajrasattva. And you allow yourself to feel the healing light, the loving gaze, the smile. Bathing your whole body. healing you even in your darkest places. sit in Vajrasattva's presence, more you, more you become like him. inspired by the role model of the Kamapa and the Dalai Lama. We connect with a soft spot in our heart with the intention to wake up and to grow up for the benefit of all. <coughs> Vajrasattva dissolves into light and it fills your heart.
heart becomes a source of healing, a source of light for yourself and others. Feel the purity of Vajrasattva, the ultimate bodhicitta of Vajrasattva radiating in your heart. Indestructible purity of you, purity and goodness of your own being, your own Buddha nature. the three principal aspects of the path. <coughs> the way I talk about it and the word I use, I, I uh, got from uh, Lama Yish's book, Introduction into Tantra. So again, I can recommend you that book and you can read this chapter, which have exactly these three headlines. No? Emerging, emerging, opening, dissolving. The reason why Lama Yisha is uh, referring to these three principles is because he's a Guluk teacher. And every Guluk teacher who would um, give an introduction into Tantra would start with the three principles. So that's very common. Like if a Guluk Lama gives an initiation, uh, most of them, they usually take that as an opportunity to give this really very fundamental teachings as the foundation, the, these three principles. And the three principal aspects, the way I teach, I talk about it tonight, I got from Lama Yesha, but Lama Yesha is referring to a text by Lama Tsongkhapa. And... Uh, Lama Tsongkhapa might be not so uh, known in the West, but he is actually one of the most important Tibetan masters, a real, a, a real spiritual giant, and um, also venerated and accepted from all, from all Tibetan schools. Sometimes he is called the second Buddha. Padmasambhava is also called the second Buddha. <laughs> <laughs> And Nagarjuna is also called the second Buddha, but 
that's about it. Yeah. So he's like uh, in that class, Padmasambhava, Nagarjuna, and Lamatsongkapa. Yeah. So, uh, so Lamatsongkapa um, was a reformator in of of uh, of Tibetan Buddhism in the 14th century. And one of the reasons why he became so important is that it seems that there were some misunderstandings in in the in the in the application of the Dharma in Tibet, and that's why. Uh, and um, part of that was that there was too much emphasis on tantric practice without going going to the uh, to the foundations and without venerating the the teachings of the Shravakayana. Yeah? So the the Shravakayana, those practitioners who aim for self-liberation, who aim for ahatship. And sometimes tantric practitioners tend to look down upon these kind of practices yeah? and look down upon this kind of um, teachings. And Lama Tsongkhapa, uh, he was the one who said, that's, that's wrong. Tantric practice, which happens uh, disconnected from the fundamental, fundamental teachings of Buddhism, uh, goes into uh, uh, an unhealthy direction, in a direction of yeah, it's all empty. You know, I'm already a Buddha. I can do what I want. Uh, I can so and and so Lama Tsongkhapa reintroduced the the more fundamental teachings. That's why um, the you no. Know, out of his teachings, then the Guluk tradition emerged, which is one of the four major traditions in Tibetan Buddhism. And His Holiness the Dalai Lama, that's his school. Yeah? His Holiness the Dalai Lama is a Gelukpa. Yeah? Pa means practitioner, so he's a Gelukpa. He is also, of course, supporting all the other schools, but his, his school, his training is in the Gelukpa school. <coughs> Uh, so the, this emphasis on the fundamental Buddhist teachings of Lama Tsongkhapa is symbolized by, um, in the iconography of Lama Tsongkhapa, he's wearing this yellow hat. And maybe you have heard that Gelukpas, they are also called the yellow hat sect. Yeah? I don't know if you know that term. But if you uh, are around... Uh, Gluck Lamas, when they give initiation and in particular occasions, they, they wear this yellow hat. And this yellow hat is uh, the, the color yellow was the uh, yellow of the Buddhist monks yeah, at the Buddhist time. The Buddhist monks who were, who were practitioners of the Shravakayana, not of the Mahayana, but of the Shravakayana. Uh, so to so that, uh, Lama Tsongkhapa make very clear the importance of the more fundamental teachings. So, the masterpiece of Lama Tsongkhapa is the Lamrim Shemmo, which is probably one of the most important spiritual scriptures on this planet. I would put it into the same category as the Bible, the Quran, and the Tao Te King, and then the Lamrim Shemmo. <laughs> <laughs> um, the Lamrim Shemu means the gradient path, yeah? the gradient path to awakening, step by step. Yeah? Um, 
but this is quite a big text, you know. I, I studied that text in Nalanda, in a monastery, uh, for three years, and we had two teachings every day. So, in three years I was reading only one text, <laughs> and, that, and that was the Slumbering Shenmue. It's, it's a bit, uh, it's not a sexy book, so I wouldn't kind of um, recommend it as a, as a kind of, you know, Dharma entertainment lecture. Uh, it's it, you have to sweat through it. You know, it's like a bit like uh, reading Heidegger or you know Wittgenstein or something like that. You know, you, you really need to like it, uh, or you need to uh, not like it. You need to uh, be passionate about uh, liberation. Uh, so, and then uh, before no no. Since this is such a long text, I think Lama Sokapa thought better I, I condense it, I cook it down, I make the bouillon of this text. You know? <laughs> what is the three principles? Like like the Buddha also did with the Heart Sutra. Yeah? So like how to boil down forty years of teachings into one one short text everyone can memorize and everyone can manage to read. So that's that what what's, what Lama Tsongkhapa did in this uh, in the three principal <coughs> aspects of the path, just like a poem. It's more a poem than it's not like a it's not like a, a detailed teachings. It's really like you know, very condensed. And Actually, the text, maybe I, I can t tell you how the text um, starts, because uh, there's a kind of a fourth principle, which is not part of the three principles. Um, and that is, um, <coughs> Lama Tsongkhapa starts this text, uh, homage to the precious Lama. Yeah. So that's, uh, that's the first line. Homage to the precious Lama, and two two Wednesdays ago, I, I talked about this topic, the importance of uh, bhakti or devotion, yeah, particularly in the tantric path. Not so important in the Shavakayana, important but not so crucial in the Mahayana. But the foundation of the Trantayana is the is the Lama is the. So that's, that's something, if you want to enter really the Tantrayana, something you need to look at and work with. And it's difficult. So now the three principles. Emerging. Emerging from dissatisfaction. Emerging from, emerging from confusion. The determination to definitely emerge from dissatisfaction. So it's something like kind of film. film. You kind of are fed up and running around in the rat, rat race and looking for sugar. No? So you, you're, you're fed up from that. You have realized, okay, I have tried to squeeze lasting satisfaction out of my relationship, out of my career, out of wonderful sunsets, out of uh, looking at the Mount Everest, out of uh, and so on and so on. 
So you have you have reached a point in your life where you have tried all of that, and you have and you see clearly, this is not going to stop. The seeking mind is not going to say, ah, this is now the sunset. This is the sunset, <laughs> and it makes me whole. It brings me home. It makes me complete. I don't need any more. I'm at peace. It's not going to happen with the sunsets, because uh, the sunsets is the sunset is not a reliable source for lasting happiness, for lasting peace. So the seeking mind will immediately. I mean, probably towards the end of the sunset, already like, okay, what next? Yeah, yeah, um, bottle of rot wine by the fire. Yeah, so <laughs> and then you go there. Yeah, so and then and the seeking mind will not say, well, this is the final bottle of wine at the fire. This brings me home. This makes me full. Now I don't need anything anymore. I am at peace. No. It's not going to happen. So we had many, 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 many days like that. Actually, from the Buddhist point of view, since beginningless time. Sunset, red wine. I don't know what your fantasy is about. <laughs> after, the, after the sunset and the bottle of red wine, there's usually something coming up, yeah. so we had, we, had many, we had many days like that, many, many days. We have gone through this circle uh, again and again. So definite emergence is, it does not mean, uh, oh, it's dangerous, don't enjoy the sunset, don't enjoy the bottle of wine. No, no, that's wrong. This is not what renunciation is. Yeah? Renunciation is to have to let go of the exaggerated uh, expectations, yeah? and uh, it's uh, letting go of making that the main purpose of our life: seeking sunsets and bottle of wines, uh, as if that is the purpose of life. Uh, and it's difficult because, particularly, we. Uh, live in a culture where we are really brainwashed into that our life is about that because they want to sell this bottle of wines to us so we, we are we are not supported in being content and happy with simple things and being satisfied with ourselves that's not supported in our culture we might even feel uh, like losers if we don't run in the rat race um, so, definite immersion. Renunciation means so de to to definitely definitely want to emerge from this, from dissatisfaction, from the seeking mind, from the dissatisfied this is a dissatisfied mind, um, and turning to that which <coughs> really gives you peace. So it's not only that you turn away from something, you also turn towards something. So this is important. Uh, and so what is that, what you, what you actually want to turn to instead? Yeah. So it's not like uh, pleasure is bad. No, it's like, wow, there is actually no, the, 
of course I enjoy my pleasure, but I don't make a big deal out of it. It's not the purpose of this life, because pleasure, uh, pleasure which is based on nice things is unreliable. It will pass, for sure, but also it does not really quench your thirst. It stays like sugar, you know. Sugar gives you this kind of short-term kick, it makes you then addicted, so you want more, but there's no, there's no nourishment in it. It actually, it harms you at one point. Yeah. So it's like giving up the sugar because you, you realize, yeah, it's nice, and if there's a piece of sugar, yes, I can still enjoy it, but it's uh, it, that what, what, I can, what I can actually experience in terms of peace, in terms of bliss, somewhere else it's it's much it's much bigger it's much uh, it's it's reliable it's it's a refuge sugar is not a refuge so w one thing is important here renunciation does not mean that pleasure is something evil that we should avoid pleasure this is something which easily can happen in these teachings in the renunciation teachings. And if on the Shravakayana, the view on pleasure, so on the on the on the on the path of self-liberation, heading towards hardship, pleasure has a very bad reputation. Pleasure and anger, bad. They are the <laughs> bad guys. Yeah? That's different in the Tantrayana. Because pleasure and also anger have a wisdom aspect. So something we can transform. Actually, in the in the on the Tantrayana, the 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 relationship to pleasure would be more. Uh, let's see how I can use, or how 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 the vitality which can arise when we relate to pleasure in a balanced way, not in a seeking way, not in a grasping way, but in a in a balanced way, pleasure can. Increase your vitality. Pleasure can increase your joy. And on the Tantrayana, on the Vajrayana, you you uh, you experiment how then to use this increased vitality and this increased joy for um, meditating on emptiness. So whatever you you hear tonight about renunciation, I have not said that pleasure is dangerous. And it's a misunderstanding. When, when, we, when, when, of course, the Buddha taught it. Yeah, the Buddha taught it, but he didn't really mean it. <laughs> you see, most, most of what the Buddha taught, he didn't really mean. It's important. Most of what the Buddha taught is skillful means. Most of the Buddha scriptures, from the it, that's maybe chauvinistic uh, tantra tantra view, not Tibetan tantra view, but uh, in the Tibetan uh, uh, tradition, they have this thing of distinguishing ultimate teachings and interpretative teachings, teachings you need to interpret. Yeah. So when the Buddha said, pleasure is bad, anger is bad, that's a skillful means. It's not what he really means. 
what does the Buddha really mean, then you have to read the Heart Sutra. That's what the Buddha really means. That's a definite scripture. So this is important to, to realize that when you, when you listen to Buddhist teachings, we tend to take them too, you know, too literal, too fundamentalistic. And then may, we might come we might become someone who thinks that anger is a, is a is an evil thing. <coughs> so now I, I want to read a quote of uh, Lama Yeshe about renunciation. What the development of true renunciation implies is that we no longer rely on sensory pleasure for our ultimate happiness. We don't rely on sensual pleasure for our ultimate happiness. So you can kind of reflect a bit. How much of your life did you spend in the for the pursuit of temporary pleasure? Yeah. So... Renunciation is when you realize when you when you are when you realize that sensory pleasure will never bring you ultimate happiness, will never bring you everlasting peace, satisfaction, will not bring you satisfaction. You have to see that. You have to you have to realize that, and you have to see how in your mind. We still grasp to it. We feel like, oh, we have this vision of this wonderful retreat in, in the north of Sweden, wonderful meditation retreat with wonderful sunsets and wonderful peace. And, 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 uh, and then we get there, and it is never like that. There's mosquitoes, there's, the food is horrible, we are tired, the, bo the body aches. But we are fooled. We are fooled by this, by the grasping mind. The grasping mind tells you that there is something in the future which you don't have yet, which you don't have, have yet, and if you have it, then you will be in peace. Then the dissatisfied, dissatisfied, dissatisfied mind will say, ah. Oh, Now I'm satisfied. And nothing in the future will do that for you. Because it's here. It's inside of you. And it's available to you completely in this moment. That nothing is missing. Nothing what you need, which is somewhere in the future. And one of the problems with making, uh, making this searching for completion in sensual pleasure a problem is that we put all our energy and, energy and all our time into it. So we actually don't explore the possibility of 
finding everlasting peace right now in this moment in the catastrophe of our psyche and the catastrophe of our outer life. We, we, we will not even kind of pause and, and, and follow, the, follow that possibility. Wow, what actually happens if I stop the running and I sit down and I explore the possibility of finding peace now in this moment? So, and that is, this, this is this definite emerging. I really, definitely, definitely, I want to emerge from this seeking mind into the complete mind. I want to emerge from the seeking mind into the complete mind. It is important to understand this point clearly. Renunciation is not the same as giving up pleasure or denying ourselves happiness. It means giving up our unreal expectation about ordinary pleasures. These expectations themselves are what turn pleasure into pain. It cannot be said too often that there is nothing wrong with pleasure. It is our grasping, exaggerating, distorting and polluting attitude toward pleasure that must be abandoned, abandoned, that must be abandoned. So that's like the definite emergence. What we want to emerge from is the exaggerating, distorting and polluting attitude towards pleasure. That's what we want to emerge from. So in the Vajrasattva practice, you know, so the, the Vajrasattva practice is actually exactly that. It is a, a relaxing, it is a purification of these grasping, exaggerating, distorting and polluting attitudes or habits. That's what we that, that's what we let go in the form of the black smoke, in the in in the, in the form of the, the black tear. So mm. We imagine how the, the, the healing nectar of Vajrasattva runs, uh, runs through it and is dissolving the dissatisfied, dissatisfied mind and all the different aspects of the dissatisfied mind, the grasping, the exaggerating, the distorting. What would be a, a limiting factor in the Vajrasattva practice would be if we practice Vajrasattva to feel good. Okay, short term, that's kind of an attitude we of, which often creeps in a, into our meditation practice in general. This attitude of, okay, I meditate now because then I, feel, then I feel good. And if I don't feel good while I meditate or after, it was a bad meditation. That is a very modest motivation to meditate. Actually, with that kind of meditation, with that kind of intention in your meditation, you have not entered the, the spiritual path. Then you're just doing what what everyone does. Someone drinks a beer to feel a little bit better, we sit down and do the Vajrasattva practice in the morning to 
in the evening to feel a little bit better. So if that is our intention, then our training would be uh, to uh, to see that to see that oh wow there's quite a bit of that kind of short-term thinking in my meditation practice. So you relax that, and then you replace it with a with a bit with a different intention, with a more uh, with a with a broader intention, with a longer uh, longer perspective intention, and with um, uh, and then bodhicitta comes in with a more altruistic intention. Any question to the to this first comments to that first renunciation? Yes. Yes, I'm wondering because you're talking about the ultimate teachings and the more whatever word it was. Who decides what is the ultimate teaching? The ultimate teachings is the teachings on emptiness. Who decides that? Who decides that? That's um, because that's how things are. The teachings on emptiness describe reality. It's not like uh, it's not like a belief, or it's not like um, it's not like um, someone would need to decide. Well, these are the these are these are the teachings which describe reality because uh, you, you, you reflect on these teachings and you meditate on them and you make first experiences. So you realize, you realize yourself that these, are, these teachings are describing ultimate reality. So if my interpretation is that this teaching or text or part of the text is about emptiness, then that's the ultimate so then, teaching for me. Yeah, yes. Yes, yeah, but there are texts who are, who are not about emptiness. So, but for, who for, for, for example, um, when uh, when the uh, when when the Buddha describes how monks should clean their bowls. Or, or that monks should shave their hair. So that that is that is uh, 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 that is a that is a skillful means. It's like a teaching given to certain people at a certain time, which are useful as a kind of medicine for certain people at a certain time. But it's not uh, an ultimate teaching because. There's also the teachings of the yogis who are supposed not to cut their hair and let their hair grow. So now they both could fight. You know, the teachings uh, on you have to grow your hair because it's life force and it's actually a sign of renunciation not to cut your hair. And then the monk says, oh, you, you are attached to your hair. You know? That's why I shave my hair. That's a, that's a sign of renunciation. But maybe some teachers say this is the ultimate. No, but it's not the ultimate. You, you can't... Uh, it's, it's, it's obvious by, by this example that, uh, that um, 
that these are two that they are what to say like it's called upaya skillful means yeah so it's like the doctor giving to a fat person the re uh, the recipe of eating more little and to to a, a person who is starving the doctor gives the medicine of um, eating more so in that moment it's the right teaching for that for that uh, for that person but it's like relative you can't say this is the ultimate teaching so we all have to eat more that's why that's why that's why i said uh, and i like to say it because it really uh, triggers people you know when i say the buddha didn't really mean it yeah uh, so th that's why I mean that's of course he meant it in that moment for that person because he can see what's the best teaching for that person in this moment but he does not really mean it in the sense that now this is the teaching and we all have to do that yes but you could say that about everything I guess no there but is not always some contradiction no not in the teachings of emptiness okay, yeah, because the teachings of emptiness uh, describe reality There is no discussion. There is no. <laughs> there is no. Uh, there is no. Um, there is no. It, 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 it does. It, you, it, that is this. The teachings on emptiness. They are valid for everyone. Because they describe how things are. <coughs> and if you deeply study emptiness and you meditate on it, then you see it yourself. That this is how things are. And this is not this is not open to interpretation. This is this is like that for a Christian mystic, for anyone who sees reality. Who, sees emptiness, sees, and if you read the descriptions of these mystics, then you, then you see, yeah, they're describing the same thing, and that's the ultimate teaching of the Buddha. What's the problem? It's to, you no, don't like, like, you don't like uh, uh, chauvinistic, fundamentalistic uh, statements. I'm not sure what you mean by that, but it's ah. just that uh, I'm thinking that a person that has a lot of power could say, "Oh, this is uh, ultimate teaching, and this is not," and then uh, and you give the legitimate legitimity to this person. So that's why I and just mm. who who def because there is always somebody that defines if you interpret something. And mm. Yeah. So that was my mm. thought. Maybe yeah, a little suspicious, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. But uh, emptiness, yeah, okay, then you can say okay. <laughs> but you know, I'm not that into all the texts, so I mm. we couldn't. If you gave me some examples, I wouldn't follow. I mean, 
this text is about emptiness, this is ultimate, and this is not. So yes, you would yeah. recognize, for example, yeah, if, you, I if, would if, I knew, if I read mm. them and I knew Yeah, them, it's yeah. so if you read so the Heart Sutra, for example, or all the Prashnaparamita Sutras, then, then, then you will see, wow, they are about emptiness. They describe emptiness. And, and one, one indication for that is that they don't make sense. <laughs> the, 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 the teachings the Buddha that do, the, the teachings which the Buddha does not really mean they make sense yeah because they are you know they, they, they are like instructions they describe they, 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 they are kind of they, they are clear, you know, they make sense to the conceptual mind. Yeah? That's, why, that's why they are relative. Yeah? But the teachings on emptiness, they don't make sense. That's why they are ultimate. <laughs> because the ultimate reality can't be described by the conceptual mind. So you could say, I don't know if this is stupid to say that, but you could say, when you, when you understand the Buddha, he does not really mean it. <laughs> and, when, and when you don't understand what he says, then probably he is, he is describing, he is, he is describing ultimate reality and is trying to pull the rug under your feet. I mean, the rug under the conceptual mind. <clears throat> okay, so that's renunciation. The second, the second is bodhicitta. So the three principles, they of course they go together. You know? so they are not like two separate things. They support each other. They, they, you know, they, they really blend into each other. So bodhicitta is uh, practicing vajrasattva. Uh, to bring forth your fu full potential for the benefit of all. So it's, uh, it is this altruistic intention. Uh, wanting, to, wanting to stop your reactive mind, wanting to stop to add to the violence in this world for the benefit of all. That's why I practice Vajrasattva. Uh, healing my addictions, not only because it feels good to be free of addictions, but because I want to stop to create a mess around myself, to others. So wanting to let go of my anger, not only because it's really hard to be angry and it's unpleasant, no, because when I work with that, I benefit the people around me. Yeah? So that's like uh, broadening, opening our our uh, our intention of of practicing Vajrasattva. and then the third principle is um, dissolving. So what we dissolve in the Buddhist teachings is projections. And uh, in the Vajrasattva practice, um, we dissolve this projection that we are limited beings that we are uh, that we are 
that there's something wrong with us, that we are broken, that we are hopeless, yeah? that, uh, that we are bad, that we are unworthy. So these are limiting projections. And part of the Vajrasattva practice, as with other practices, tantric practices, we use this taking the result of the path into the path. So in the Vajrasattva practice, we really dissolve our self-limiting projections, yeah? Pull me, uh, in uh, being Vajrasattva. So you feel you, I am Vajrasattva. So you connect with your original purity, your indestructible purity, and you feel it and you embody it. And with that you you nurture and draw it forth and you bring it more into your life. Not only that, so as in all, in all other tantric practices, you not only dissolve the limiting projections towards yourself, but you also dissolve the limiting projections to the so-called outer world. So part of tantric practice and also the Vajrasattva practice is that you also see other people as Vajrasattva. So you, you, you look through the projections onto other people that they are, um, that they are this uh, disturbed, uh, disturbed, neurotic, uh, scared, anxious, addicted people and that's the truth and that's how they are and then this exaggerating of these qualities, of these limiting qualities. So that's one way to look at a person and with that view on a person you, you, it's like you, you see the tip of the iceberg yeah, and you don't see the rest. The rest would be Buddha nature. And, and your mind uh, clings to that and does not realize that it is a projection. It appears like this. Yeah. So part of Vajrasattva practice is, for example, that you see your partner, the one you're living with, or your children, as Vajrasattvas. So you see kind of behind the, th this, this transparent facade where we usually go, got stuck in. So that's um, moving, uh, in, in that, that's moving in your daily life through the mandala of Vajrasattva. So dissolving self-limiting, dissolving limiting projections regarding to yourself and dissolving limiting projections regarding others. And this is possible to do that because you yourself, you are empty, so you don't exist in a fixed way. And also the people around you and the environment is em empty and does not exist in a fixed way. So that's why, that's, uh, why it is possible to uh, no, that's why nothing exists as something solidly, separately, out of itself. Because it's empty of existing in that way. That is a hallucination, that is an illusion. And this 
limiting projections onto yourself and others. That's called ignorance in the Buddhist teachings. So that is uh, uh, the three principles. Um, as a foundation for tantric practice in general, but since we are doing the Vajrasattva practice particularly now uh, uh, as part of the uh, the Vajrasattva practice, yeah, so to to in the beginning of the Vajrasattva practice to cultivate the the determination to be free of harmful patterns of um, of uh, harmful habits of uh, through the also through the power of regret like you are kind of you know like a like a like an alcoholic who wants to really emerge from this habit because he, he sees if I, I just create a big mess for myself and my family and I really want to emerge from this yeah. so that's the definite emerge, emergence then doing that not only with the intention for yourself but with uh, the altruistic intention of the open heart bodhicitta and then the dissolving, self-limiting um, projections. That's particular, you know, this moment when we stop to recite the mantra. I mean, it's already like we purify, so we dissolve uh, all the all the contractions and where we hold on. But then, particular at the end of the recitation, when there's this gap, yeah, and I said, uh, I said to you as to you before that in, on the highest yoga tantra practice in that moment we would actually go to the death process so and in the death process all limiting projections they dissolve because limiting projections are a function of the conceptual mind so when the conceptual mind dissolves all limiting projections they dissolve because they don't have any base anymore so when we stop to recite the mantra, there is a gap. Yeah? And it's maybe just very short. Yeah? And then out of that gap, we arise as if we were Chasattva. So we dissolve our limiting projection onto ourselves and we feel uh, how it is to be Vajrasattva. 